Welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. We are already on episode number nine, and today we get the Employment Cost Index. We've also got a review of multiple different earnings sets. The uh, Employment Cost Index, a pretty important measure the Federal Reserve likes to pay attention to, comes out in about 42 minutes. We'll be getting that. Survey says 1.1% for the quarter-over-quarter estimate and 5.1% for the year-over-year estimate. 1.1 being slightly down from 1.2 uh, from the prior read and 5.1 being slightly up uh, from the uh, prior read. So we'll see what we get. Obviously, a soft ECI would be very beneficial to keep the Fed on the path of just 25 BP hike here in Feb, maybe one more in March, and then a nice little posy dozy in May. That would be fantastic. Bed Bath & Beyond closing 87 stores and five Bye Bye Baby stores. Uh, those are being closed per their Friday update. That it brings them to a total of, uh, over the last year, 150 stores closed uh, and a total projected 287 closures out of uh, 949 stores. That's, that's about 30% of the company is shutting down, and now they're widely expected to actually make their official bankruptcy filing this week. This morning, we got a little bit of a beat from UPS. Uh, they continue to rebuy their stock. A little bit of a beat, not so much on top line, but actually on bottom line. So they worked on controlling some costs more, which is good. We like to see costs get uh, contained, so to speak. Uh, it keeps a little bit of that pricing pressure down. Spotify reported a slightly larger loss than expected, but its user growth actually grew. Uh, they grew about 20% year over year, now at 489 million active users, which is remarkable. Uh, what's also remarkable, though, is that this uh, live stream gets now posted to Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts within about 30 minutes after the end of the stream, which I think is quite useful. Whirlpool uh, actually gave us some uh, positive insight on inflation. They expect to see easing raw material costs provide some relief in 2023. We've heard this a lot now, that companies are starting to see that turn in inflation, and by the second half of the year, they expect to uh, be a lot more optimistic, <laughs> or at least start seeing those green shoots. Material cost reductions, uh, they're already starting to see the beginning of those come through. Samsung reported some pretty weak earnings, although this was widely expected. They reported their weakest earnings in eight years, and uh, Samsung sees a recovery. Also, in the second half, with how many companies and earnings calls are talking about the recovery coming in the second half, I can't help but think maybe, just maybe, we might actually end up being in a recession in this first and second quarter here, and then maybe we come out of it uh, at um, essentially the third, the third quarter, which is interesting because stock markets usually bottom close to the relative beginning of a, of, of a recession uh, being, uh, well, uh, occurring. Uh, and so it makes you wonder, would, would that potentially put us close to that December, January timeframe, which stock markets also tend to bottom about six to nine months before the bottom in earnings. Could the bottom in earnings be the end of the second quarter, which sort of line up with about December? Who knows? Arrival, the uh, EV startup, is slashing half of its remaining staff after having already cut a lot more staff. They're uh, struggling, now now struggling, well, they've been actually kind of struggling, burning cash, uh, EV startup in the United Kingdom. And uh, they were originally going to plan uh, to build multiple smaller sort of micro factories. I always thought this was a little bit of a silly idea because the point of a factory is to have scale. 
not a bunch of smaller factories all over the world. But but anyway, now they've they've decided to ditch their plans to build a factory in the United Kingdom. Instead, they're going to focus on building vehicles out of a United States plant in South Carolina. But that plant's not actually built yet. So that, now they're not actually expecting to build vans until the second half of 2024. Their quarterly spend, though, is down to about 30 million bucks, and they've got about six to seven quarters of cash as of December. So I think uh, they're kind of going for the hope strategy that maybe somebody will come buy them out. But uh, it ain't looking good. BlockFi just got uh, approval in Bankruptcy Corp uh, just yesterday to start liquidating mining assets, computer equipment, uh, ASICs, thousands of mining machines. Now, I, it doesn't, I don't think they were a big actual miner themselves, but they were a big financer of Bitcoin machines. So people who wanted to buy Bitcoin machines, borrow money to be able to mine, BlockFi would, would lend people money. And so then when you repossess those mining, mach uh, mining machines because people aren't paying, uh, now you get all the machines back, but now you got to sell them for potentially pennies on the dollar at auction. Uh, Celsius is doing something similar to this as well. It's kind of a disaster. Uh, Bitcoin, by the way, sagging a bit after uh, one of the, probably one of the most solid rallies we've seen uh, from Bitcoin in a while. Just uh, just in the last about uh, maybe 48 hours, we've gone from that rejection at about 24,000 to now sitting under 23,000. Remember again, today is ECI Day. Uh, it's an important uh, important Fed measure. It's probably one of the most important Fed measures that the Fed looks at. Uh, so I'd, I'd, I'd put a lot of, uh, well, next to inflation, obviously. But wage inflation and services-based inflation because of wage inflation seems to be one of their biggest focuses right now. And the ECI should give us some insight. Uh, it, it's, it's an indicator that's not terribly heavily watched. But uh, it, it, it has become more prominent recently because Jerome Powell has made it clear. Yeah, I, I like the employment cost index report. <laughs> uh, so we'll get that along with uh, obviously multiple earnings uh, this week. Uh, this, uh, this week in terms of earnings uh, today, like I had already mentioned, we had uh, UPS. But we're also getting Exxon, McDonald's, uh, Caterpillar. General Motors coming out. We've got uh, AMD after the bell, Snapchat, EA, Western Digital, Striker, Amgen, Match Group, Mondelez. Uh, <laughs> boy, we got a lot of earnings. Uh, then tomorrow we've got another big day. Tomorrow we've got uh, actually, well, oh, ooh, so there we go. Uh, okay, uh, tomorrow we have Altera. We have oh, why did it all of a sudden do that? Usually this sorts by. Uh, <laughs> Usually this sorts by market cap, and all of a sudden it's sorting these alphabetically. Uh, we've got T-Mobile, Waste Management, Peloton, MVI Homes. These are tomorrow, and the, that's tomorrow before the bell. Tomorrow after the bell, we have, let's see here, Facebook. Ah, Facebook's tomorrow. Okay, yeah, that'll, that'll be interesting. Facebook tomorrow after the bell, Vista Outdoor, Universal Corporation. And uh, then, of course, on Thursday, we've got the big boys. Thursday, we have, of course, 1-800-Flowers. <laughs> no, we have, uh, let's see here. I'm surprised this is not sorting by market cap anymore. MicroStrategy, we have uh, Apple, we have Amazon. Those will come up on Thursday. So I wouldn't be surprised 
if markets are slightly tentative today, uh, kind of like they were yesterday, because you've got larger catalysts coming up over the next couple of days that you may as well wait for. I think that's what a lot of institutions do. I think that's what a lot of individuals do, is ultimately, if you've got the Fed FOMC meeting tomorrow uh, in their press conference at 11.30 a.m. Pacific tomorrow, why? Why would you load into stocks today if you could just see what j Powell says tomorrow? Are prices really going to be that different? Probably not. Uh, and then, uh, but then again, who knows? Depends what j Powell says. And then, of course, you've got earnings, substantial earnings this week. And so if all goes well, hopefully, hopefully the uh, shackles on the market could be removed uh, by the end of the week. It's somewhat to me like what happened with Tesla, where it's almost like it doesn't really matter how bad the news is. The market just wants the news. And once the market gets the news, the market can breathe a sigh of relief because even if we have bad news, at least we know. I think the worst thing the market hates is the uncertainty of not knowing. The not knowingness is um, something that creates a lot of anxiety in, in individuals in their lives. And no surprise, the stock market is a graph of human psychology. And so <laughs> we have a lot of tentativeness before uh, earnings and, and uh, other catalysts. Not a big surprise. Welcome aboard, by the way. Thank you so much for joining uh, as a uh, member here on the channel. Appreciate it, TC Financial. Yeah, we'll be talking a lot about... Uh, the wage price spiral in just a moment. Unpopular opinion, companies buy back stocks to drive prices higher. So executives get awarded shares, not because the stock is undervalued. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it, it could potentially be an argument that uh, it's a percentage of both, <laughs> but I, I would agree with you. Uh, Kyler, Kevin, I joined the real estate investing course a few days ago. I love the way you teach. Your ability to conduct information is amazing. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Kyler. Appreciate that. Morning from Maine. You're about to hit the slopes. Oh, I'm jealous. That's amazing. This uh, mug says Super Restore Potion, by the way, that I'm drinking coffee out of. 1-800-Flowers. <laughs> Reminder to send Lauren flowers. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. So now uh, let's see here. Now we're going to talk. Uh, we've got a few different things. Jim Kramer. Okay. what What are you doing? Uh, hold on a second here. So, Jim Cramer just tweeted the following. Jim Cramer tweeted, I have to hand it to Kathy Wood and her buying of Teladoc. She is not phased by anything, including her own poor performance. Ouch. Uh, radically strong. Okay, well, the problem with Teladoc... And I don't love Teladoc personally, but one of the things that drives me nuts about Teladoc was a few uh, months ago, they actually probably about six months ago at this point, they reported earnings and they, and they cut down their uh, goodwill estimates substantially. Massive cut down on, uh, on their goodwill. And uh, goodwill is basically a brand definition, right? So if you say, oh, we have $5 billion in goodwill, the, the idea is that, oh, it must mean your brand value is worth that. And really what it does is it tends to prop up the balance sheet of a company, and it makes a company potentially look a lot more financially stable uh, than it actually is, because really what the companies can do is uh, they could say, well, look at all the assets we have. And so individuals who even bother to go look at the uh, financial statements, if they happen to make it to the balance sheet, they might see, oh, look, we have so many assets compared to XYZ debts. 
uh, at least the assets are so large. But the problem is, if there were ever an issue, the balance sheet does you very little good if a lot of it is, uh, you know, basically built into goodwill because that money can't be liquidated. It's it's essentially worthless uh, money uh, that's tied up into goodwill, especially if a company starts performing poorly. If anything, it could be argued that that goodwill is actually worse, <laughs> not better, uh, which obviously nobody wants to consider that, uh, that that a company's goodwill might actually be less uh, less than it's uh, expected or proposed to be. But uh, looking at uh, the uh, Teladoc balance sheet right now, uh, it looks like Teladoc has, uh, let's see here, we have, da, 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 let's go ahead and pop that up on screen here. There we go. Here's the balance sheet that we have right now. We're looking at Teladoc Goodwill sitting at $4.8 billion. Uh, they previously had it as high as $14.5 billion. So uh, they've, they've, they've really cut down their, their goodwill estimate for what they have at their company, but it's still remarkably high. And I think what they've done is they've said, well, our goodwill is lower because our stock price is down. Peak to where it's now, the stock is down over 90%, about 90.5%. Over the last five years, the stock is down 21%. So it's down even worse than, than COVID uh, or, or, or um, pre-COVID, which is kind of remarkable. But uh, yeah, the, the, the balance sheet here, the, 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 the estimates that they leave on Goodwill, I think they evaluate how much their brand is worth based on their, their actual market cap which is not how it's supposed to work, especially since right now, the market cap of Teladoc is actually $4.5 billion. Here, let's label this. This is the TDoc Q3 uh, earnings report, and we're looking at it today. So you've got 4.5 billion, oops, oh, a silly iPad here. You've got $4.5 billion of a market cap for this company, but they're saying their goodwill alone is worth 4.8. So in other words, the company from a goodwill perspective is worth more than the actual market cap. And really market cap should have nothing to do with goodwill, but I, I find it kind of remarkable that they still have this sort of insane accounting going on here, propping up essentially their total assets right here. Right here, your total assets sitting at about $8 billion. Now, if you look at debts, You've got, uh, let's see here, total current liabilities, actually not terrible. You've got total current liabilities sitting at about 411. You've got a total current assets and cash. You've got about $900 million, which is nice. You've got about twice as much cash as they have current liabilities, which is good. And then they don't have too many long-term debts. In fact, most of their long-term debts are convertible senior notes, which basically just turn into stock. It's, uh, it's essentially uh, stock dilution. Uh, but that's okay because usually once those convertibles are announced, uh, the stock market already adjusts for that dilution. And that's why we have two types of stocks that we show. We, we generally show an outstanding amount of stocks and then we show a diluted amount. And that's why generally we get two reads uh, for a stock count. But, uh, but anyway, the, uh, the, the, the company itself is uh, still losing money from operations and it hasn't gotten any better over the last year. We look at revenue at the company, it is up roughly about 19% revenue increase here. But as revenue has gone up about 19%, it looks like their amount of advertising spend has actually shot up about 60%. So about 19% boost in revenue 
uh, coming out of obviously uh, and, and assumptively here the, the the crazy COVID comps, but their advertising exploded about 60%, and they're just not able to get those sales to keep going. Uh, in my opinion, that gives you a, that gives me a little bit of a concern that w what if they've peaked out, right? What if you've maxed out potentially, and uh, and and you're not going to be able to continue uh, to to actually grow to where you could escape your operating costs. Remember, the goal of a company is to grow their revenue uh, minus their cost of goods sold, so basically their gross profit, more than their operating expenses. That way, they can actually have a profitable company, but they don't have that right now. In fact, right now, the company's losing about 73 million bucks a quarter. That's not to uh, uh, you know be confused with this insane goodwill impairment of $9.6 billion that they wrote in over here. Personally, I think it was almost nearly fraudulent to suggest that their goodwill was that large. Uh, and, and then they just took a massive write down on it. Uh, it, it. It just feels quite misleading to investors, but it's not a company that I've been very, very excited about, uh, personally at least. And you know, who knows, maybe their growth will end up picking up again. We can get them from a net loss to a positive. Let's look at their cash flow statement for a moment. So. If we actually look in uh, operating cash flows, you're positive $123 million. That's because you're adding back things like goodwill impairments and stock-based comp. And uh, when we look at uh, investments that the company is making, uh, they're relatively nominal. So you don't have a, uh, you don't have a lot of uh, acquisitions or, or, or expenses here into investment. So their free cash flow is roughly about $120 million. So the nice thing is they are generating cash. I mean, some of their expenses are going to things like depreciation and stock-based comp. So you probably don't really have a balance sheet issue here. The big question is just, is the company going to be able to grow like people expect? Personally, not the biggest fan. Uh, again, I think uh, this this was something that really exploded during the COVID era, but the experiences that at least we've had with Teladoc or, or Lauren specifically have been, it, it almost has felt like the doctors that you get on Teladoc, and it's, uh, you know, I, I'm sure it's not their fault, it's probably just the company systems, but they, they seem to need to assembly line people, and you kind of lose that whole, like, Oh, my doctors, like he know my doctor, he or she, they know me, right? You lose that kind of connection, and it's sort of like, all right, what are your symptoms? All right, here's your solution. Get out of here, you know. Uh, and you know what? Maybe, maybe that's good for many things, right? I mean, think about it. Like, you know, if you have an ear infection, you're like, I know I got an ear infection. Do, do, do like, you know, can can we just get prescribed some antibiotics over here? I know it's not supposed to work that way, and somebody's probably got to stick a scope down your ear. But the point is. If, if you know you got an ear infection and you're like, oh my gosh, I really don't want to go to the doctor, sit in the waiting room and spend two hours of my day hoping that I get my antibios and you could just get that over Teladoc, hey, that'd be awesome. But we also know there are a lot of things they can't do uh, and, and a lot of things do take um, in-person meetings. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know how I feel about the potential trajectory of Teladoc, but I guess everybody would have their own individual opinions on that. If we do look, though, at uh, Teladoc on sort of a five-year trend of Google search trends, we get a little bit of insight uh, in that in 2022, you've certainly had more people use or at least search for Teladoc uh, than you had in 2021 or before 2019. But... 
that also then makes me wonder if, if there's no clear trend to the upside and if we stay around here and they only grew at about, what, 19% or so last year, does that potentially end up leaving Teladoc stuck in the mud where their, their growth ends up flat uh, and they're losing money and they've got some funny accounting practices? I don't know. Uh, for me, it's it's not uh, it's not one of the most exciting plays. I imagine they'll uh, they'll do their best to uh, uh, expand their growth. But again, a big red flag that I regularly look at when I do fundamental analysis, especially when we do these fundamental analyses with uh, course members, is uh, we look at how much are they growing revenues, and I never actually calculated it. I just sort of mental math that you know, 611 is slightly about uh, 20%, about 100 mil more. Uh, but see, if I actually do the math, it's not 19%, as I earlier said. It's actually only 17.2% revenue growth. All right, so you've got 17.2% revenue growth quarter over quarter. And I can tell you if that's speeding up or slowing down. Financial statements can tell you so much. I'm a big fan of fundamental analysis. Yeah, it's actually slowed down. So you were growing at 19.6% the first nine months of 2022. Now you're actually growing at 17.2%, yet you're spending 60% more uh, on advertising. Uh, and, and so to me, uh, personally, just as an investor, I look at that and I think to myself, that's a little bit of a red flag. You have a company that's essentially spending to try to induce growth, but it's not able to do so. That sends a signal to me that their good or their service is... Uh, no longer that uh, that self-fulfilling network effect style service where you can kind of get the flywheel in motion and then the product just sells itself. This actually turns into a product you kind of have to really actively and heavily sell to people or companies uh, who, who end up with company-wide subscriptions for Teladoc uh, and all their employees. And, uh, and that gets very expensive because employees and salespeople are expensive, especially, I mean, it's great if they work on commission. In theory, then they should make you money, but there are often base salaries involved and benefits. Sales is expensive, uh, but it's also critical. Ideally, the best form of sales is where you advertise once uh, or, or you have a product like, I'll, I'll create an example. I know I always go back to Tesla, but you make an example like Tesla. Uh, you, you sell someone a Tesla and they buy full self-driving. They tell everyone around them, oh man, you wanna go on a ride? You wanna see full self-driving? Look at what technology, and, and people were blown away. That's basically free advertising, right? You don't get that so much with a company like Teladoc where it's sort of like, oh yeah, I went on a Teladoc, doctor was okay. Had to go to the doctor anyway. <laughs> or I don't know, they're kind of mean. <laughs> I don't know. And negative news, negativity always spreads like seven times faster than, than good news or positive things. Kind of sad, by the way, about social media. You get that a lot in social media as well. I think people are uh, generally... Uh, uh, more interested in negativity than positivity. But that, you know, that's that's drama. After all, that's why and how uh, uh, news, news gets to spread pretty quickly. Which actually reminds me of, oh, hold on, let's see. They can and do write prescriptions over telehealth. Very urgent care who rarely write scripts. Shocking, I know, but yeah, I, I believe that they can write certain prescriptions. You know, I think if you come in and, and give them the very clear symptoms of an ear infection, do they really need to see you to prescribe you amoxicillin? Probably not. Should they probably? Because we overuse antibiotics anyway, probably. But <laughs> uh, hey, you know what? Uh, good luck, Teladoc. Now though, we've got to talk about Pfizer. 
Pfizer just reported earnings this morning, but we also got a little bit of insight, not just into the Pfizer earnings, but into what happened with Pfizer's response, what some of Pfizer's response means to the allegations against them, and what YouTube was doing in response to Pfizer. In my opinion, this is shocking because the shockingness of YouTube censoring Pfizer selective, or not censoring Pfizer, <laughs> censoring Project Veritas blew my mind. I'll pull that up and we'll get started on that. All right, one second here. I'm surprised I didn't, well, I partially got censored, but I'll, I'll tell you in a moment. All right, here we go. This is YouTube's internal leaked memo on why Project Veritas's release on Pfizer-related directed evolution and COVID vaccine uh, sort of experiments was censored. Uh, Pfizer, uh, obviously we know this, has responded. We'll reiterate some of their response in just a moment. But just to give you a little bit of background before we go through this, Essentially, Project Veritas set up somebody who apparently works at Pfizer, uh, is a director of research there. Uh, Pfizer has neither confirmed nor denied that that person actually works for Pfizer, though you would think if they didn't work for Pfizer, they would say, no, we don't know that person. So I think it's safe to assume the person works at Pfizer. And Project Veritas had one of their employees basically set up a grinder date with that individual and on hidden camera talk to that person about what Pfizer does when it comes to experimenting with vaccines. And this is where we found that there are uh, three kind of things that you could do with uh, viruses to try to study uh, vaccines or preemptively make vaccines. There is something called uh, genetic uh, engineering, and, and this could be, uh, you know, for example, the example I always like to use is taking a watermelon and uh, breeding it with seedless watermelons and then breeding the result of that with other seedless watermelons. So you selectively uh, engineer a watermelon that doesn't really have seeds. That's how we've gotten seedless watermelons today. Then there's another version of genetic engineering, which is going into somebody's DNA and trying to slice out the DNA code that creates asthma, let's say, and then replacing that for DNA code that doesn't create asthma, and then hoping your body replicates that DNA code throughout your body and, and hopefully curing asthma. That doesn't exist yet. Uh, the technology to do some of that exists, but to actually make it function wide scale, we're not there yet. So, so that's sort of genetic engineering and CRISPR gene editing technology. Then uh, we have this, uh, this thing called gain of function research. And, and this is like the hot potato, right? This is, this is like, hey, look, man, if there's a virus that can only infect bats, don't mess with it, okay? Just, just leave the virus be. Please don't touch it. Uh, and if you happen to genetically uh, alter the state of that virus, and now all of a sudden that virus doesn't just infect bats, but it infects humans, you have given it a new function. That is called gain of function, gain of function research. You have provided a new function to that virus. Uh, and now Pfizer has responded. Uh, they issued a large press release on their website, uh, and their response was essentially 
the following. It's it's on screen here, and the company talks about how they want to set the record straight and clarify gain of function versus directed evolution. And wh what they say is that Pfizer has not conducted gain of function or directed evolution research. Now, directed evolution is basically just the first one that I talked about. It's genetic engineering by selecting uh, a, a, a certain virus or a certain uh, strategy over and over again. So for example, with a watermelon example, you're picking the seedless watermelon over and over and over again. And so you're directing the watermelon to evolve in a way that it doesn't grow with seeds. Uh, the allegation that, uh, or, or I, I suppose I should say, what the individual said in the Project Veritas leak video was that Pfizer uh, promotes uh, directed evolution research. They don't publicly want to say that, but basically they'll infect a monkey with a virus and then they, they sort of pick the more aggressive virus and put that, or, or let's say they infect five monkeys with a virus, they pick the one that has the most infectious version, and then they take that monkey and let it infect other monkeys. So that way they can kind of continue taking the most aggressive strains of the virus. And essentially the argument is, hey, well, let Pfizer do that to come up with vaccines against the aggressive forms of viruses, which would obviously be very profitable uh, for, for Pfizer. And it is a company that does make a lot of money. In fact, they, they actually missed on earnings today. Uh, Pfizer missed analyst expectations. Their total revenue came in at $67 billion versus 71. Their earnings per share guidance uh, was for a midpoint of about $3.35 per share versus the 431 expectation. Uh, that's a pretty big miss uh, from expectation points of view. That, that's about a 20% miss. And uh, part of it is because of a miss on how many Paxlovid treatments they expect to sell. Only 8 billion, only 8 billion, still a lot versus 9.18 expected, and uh, probably, quite frankly, fewer COVID vaccines, especially since the bivalent boosters, at least according to an expose by the Wall Street Journal, are probably not as safe and effective as previously thought. Uh, you could actually watch that video, type into YouTube, uh, Meet Kevin, uh, COVID vaccine, Wall Street Journal flips, and you'll see that video. Uh, a lot of people are sharing that video and they're enjoying it. Uh, and it goes into detail about uh, how essentially the CDC and F, um, uh, Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, approved the bivalent vaccine boosters before knowing if they were truly safe and effective. And usually an effective vaccine, ignoring the safe part for right now, again, myocarda is probably a topic for a different video, uh, the effective part of a vaccine should generally be 55% plus efficacy uh, for something to be deemed effective. But uh, studies ended up showing that the vaccine, uh, the bivalent booster was only about 23 to 43% effective for a limited period of time, potentially as little as two months, which is not great. But now uh, it's worth taking a look at this potential document here that looks like it is from YouTube. Now it's worth noting that we do not know uh, if this is indeed uh, from YouTube. Uh, we believe that this is from YouTube, but we do not know if this is from YouTube. So I, I always like to be clear about that. Uh, Project Veritas shared that uh, YouTube uh, breaking YouTube Insider leaks urgent guidance document sent to employees on how to handle Project Veritas's Pfizer directed evolution research. 
effective immediately January 27th. Now, it's, it's worth noting that what I've described to you for directed evolution, I, I don't know that society has come up with a very definitive answer in terms of what society wants. Based on obviously the backlash that Pfizer has gotten, it appears that most people are not okay with directed evolution. Uh, and most people, I think it's safe to say, are certainly not okay with gain of function research. That again is the, oh, the bat can now infect the human, for example, where it previously could not. I think it's safe to say that most people are not okay with gain of function. But directed evolution, some folks might look at that and go, well, we do want research, right? So maybe we do want to direct evolution. But then again, Pfizer's saying they don't do that, but the Project Veritas video says they do that. So what's actually happening? I personally think ultimately, this is something that our government uh, should, should provide guidance and regulation over uh, based on what the people want, right? After all, Congress is a representative of the people and uh, Congress should listen to what people want and, uh, and, and then Congress should implement rules around exactly what people want. But anyway, here is uh, what YouTube decided. So. What? A clip uploaded by Project Veritas featuring a Pfizer official is rapidly spreading on the platform. The video, when uploaded in its entirety, contains a timestamp that violates the COVID misinformation policy. It shall, uh, that, that basically, for making a categorical claim that COVID-19 vaccines are ineffective. And so, but they're basically saying, hey, we don't want claims on the platform that all COVID-19 vaccines are ineffective. Now, this is not to say that you can't talk about maybe how the boosters are less effective as long as you're actually providing sufficient data. Uh, like EDSA, uh, I believe is educational, documentary, and scientific. Uh, I will verify that quickly here. Yeah, educational, documentary, scientific, and artistic content. So as long as it's educational enough and it's in a documentary style or scientific enough, it's okay. So there's there's a lot of... So, uh, you know, to be subjected to the opinion of the reviewer as to whether or not the content violates the COVID misinformation policy. So the argument here is when reviewing any re-uploads of the Pfizer content, be sure to confirm that the following violative timestamp is present. And if it is present, you would remove the video. Uh, our undercover, the quote is, our undercover journalist asked Walker how Pfizer is handling the fact that their COVID vaccines are ineffective against virus variants. What he said is disturbing. Listen to this. I think YouTube's problem is the word, the fact, because it can be uh, argued that the original vaccines are actually quite effective against the original strain of COVID. The Wuhan variant, when, uh, and, and, and of course, there's always the argument that could be made that, well, the original studies were rigged, but originally we found that the mRNA vaccines were in excess of 90% effective, which was insanely good. Now, that was for the original Wuhan strain. Future boosters are believed to be less effective, potentially, at least that's what the Wall Street Journal reported, because of this uh, in, in, uh, weird biological circumstance known as imprinting, where your body is more likely to create more antibodies against the original exposure to the, uh, uh, to the virus and not subsequent variants. And so I think YouTube's problem here is the fact that without providing additional data, the video clip says the fact that. Uh, and so that's probably the big issue here. But what's happening is if individuals who are covering this content 
do not provide enough educational documentary or scientific or artistic data around uh, this this video, then uh, the the individual uh, channel or content creator could receive a content strike. Now, uh, and, and if it is approved, then then essentially no action should be taken. Now, I responded to this because other creators whom I know uh, have had content strikes uh, put against their channel, uh, essentially deleting the video and, and the individuals have received a content strike for covering the Project Veritas video. And uh, what's happened is uh, those individuals, if they get three strikes in a row, could end up getting banned from the platform. Uh, and that makes obviously people a lot uh, quite nervous. Uh, we don't necessarily want, you know, we, we don't want people getting banned from the platform. Uh, we want uh, we want to be able to share perspective. Now, uh, so other people on YouTube that I know have gotten strikes for covering this information, including Project Veritas received a strike for this. Uh, I actually replied to this and I said, I made a video on this which did not contain the time-stamped part YouTube was removing videos for. However, YouTube still decided to remove <clears throat> advertising revenue from my video, essentially monetary censorship. Uh, and then I provided the screenshot for that. This was my video when I covered it. Uh, the Project Veritas Pfizer vaccine scandal, the media massacre, and you can see here it has limited uh, advertising or, or monetization. So uh, this is something that uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to just bring some light to, uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm not here to defend, uh, ever censorship. In fact, I, I think it's, it's a very appropriate for, uh, this information to be shared. And that's why I'm talking about it. Uh, I think it's, uh, very, uh, great that on Twitter, you can freely share this information and then doctors and, and other experts and scientists can share their opinion. Uh, YouTube though, uh, and again, this is not a defense of YouTube, it appears they've, they've got some kind of policy that they've enacted and we don't know why or, or who motivated that policy or what connection there is to the CDC. After the Twitter files, this is probably a CDC directed policy. I don't know that YouTube itself is trying to shut this down. Uh, I think YouTube is probably just listening to the government contacts that they have saying, you need to shut this down. Uh, that scares me more. Uh, on one hand, obviously, you know, it's like, hey, well, well, YouTube should just not listen to those rules. But then also, on the other hand, YouTube might be getting their arm twisted. Remember, Google, which owns YouTube, is under now a Department of Justice investigation over them potentially being an advertising mon uh, monopoly when when the reality is they they control substantially less of the advertising uh, and, and media spend world than, uh, than, than is actually true. You know, YouTube or, or, or is alleged. YouTube controls maybe, uh, or I should say Google uh, and YouTube control maybe 20 to maybe up to 25% of advertising spend. The rest is spread amongst other companies and, and, and corporations or advertisers, uh, whether that's Trade Desk or Disney or Hulu, Connected TV, uh, TV spend, whatever. Uh, so, uh, again, n in no way should this be misinterpreted as suggesting there's a defense for, for, for YouTube here. But what I am suggesting is it's probably the government that has somehow put YouTube into between a rock and a hard place. And that is actually the more scary part to me. 
is that it's really the government coming down, in my opinion, I obviously don't know this with fact, but just based on putting together the pieces of the puzzle here and what we've learned from the Twitter files, it's probably the government telling YouTube something to the effect of, hey, uh, you know, we want this uh, content removed from your platform. You know, uh, we do have that DOJ investigation going on and obviously, you know, we'd wanna be able to put in a good word for you, right? That's scary. That should not be happening. Uh, and I think that's the that in one part is probably phase one of what's very scary with what's going on with the uh, Project Veritas video. But the second thing is you've got uh, massive media uh, organizations that are not covering this story at all. Uh, I tweeted that, uh, and, and there are more than, uh, than these, but it's also quite scary. I tweeted the following, the biggest fraud of the Pfizer and Project Veritas expose was the refusal by mainstream media to cover the Project Veritas story. The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Telegraph, the Washington Post, the Financial Times, Bloomberg, the list goes on. Fox News was essentially the only one who covered it, uh, mostly via Tucker Carlson. Uh, but, but then, you know, they kind of purposefully segment some of those things, which is also weird how they purposefully segment some things just to Tucker Carlson because they, they suggest that he's more of a, an opinion anchor rather than a news anchor. That's at least what Fox suggests. So I do think it's interesting that even Fox themselves kind of segments, uh, the, the hot potato, if you will. So those are the two scary things for me, government's involvement in censorship, uh, and then the second is the lack of willingness of mainstream media to cover this sort of uh, information and content. For me, I, I find that scary and not very good for uh, really the, the future of uh, uh, free speech and, and discussion in America. And, and so that's uh, quite scary. Now, folks, we have to cover the ECI, which we're going to do in about 20 seconds. Employment Cost Index. By the way, when I take a brief pause, it's because I'm writing timestamps, uh, which even if you watch uh, the podcasts and the descriptions of the podcasts, you can see the timestamps, or at the bottom of the YouTube video after I post it, you can see these, which is kind of cool. All right, here we go. The Employment Cost Index Report is coming out in about 10 seconds. We are looking for a survey of 1.1. This is probably going to move the stock market today. We're looking at 1.1 or less, 1.1 or less. Anything above would probably be bad news. We need to see employment costs go to 1%. Let's go. Good news, good news, good news. Good, 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 good. Oh, that's great. Uh, that is below expectations. Again, the prior report was 1.2%. Now we're at one point, uh, last, um, uh, or the survey for this report was 1.1%. We just got 1%. Thank you. Oh, this is actually really great. We want to see a softening in employment costs. This is probably the most important uh, report going into the Federal Reserve meeting. Uh, this is very, very good news. We are seeing now the NASDAQ going from negative to flat. Uh, you've got uh, a only a slight boost on certain stocks. It's not the most widely reported uh, piece, but I wouldn't be surprised that as the day goes on, this actually ends up softening uh, the Federal Reserve stance, and this could end up boosting stocks today. So I'm very optimistic about the Employment index uh, report coming in at just 1%. This is great news. Uh, and, uh, and and it's something that even Nick T reported is something that the Federal Reserve is going to be paying attention to. And that leads us to obviously needing to have an inflation discussion, which uh, well, let's go through an inflation discussion, see what some of the risks are for inflation and the market. Uh, first, 
I will just highlight the importance of ECI by showing you Nick T on Twitter saying Fed officials have said they pay close attention to the Employment Cost Index, a comprehensive measure of wage growth. Q4 figures just out aren't likely to change the outcome of the FOMC's meeting, which means we're still going to be getting the 25 basis point hike, but it could be important in shaping the outlook. Well, folks, Nick T, often deemed to be the Federal Reserve's mouthpiece, is basically telling us, hey, Jerome Powell might be nice to us at the Federal Reserve meeting tomorrow, which is quite bullish, but it does stand in the face of some not so bullish information. And what I'd like to do is, in the most unbiased way possible, try to go through some things that are good news, some things that are bad news, and just realistic information regarding inflation. I'll also provide you insight into what's going on with what layoffs tell us in terms of where in the recession cycle we could be. A lot to cover. Let's get started. The first thing that we have to remember is we have seen a deceleration and a reduction of inflation risks. However, there are a lot of companies that are reporting dangers to us. For example, Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson both reported that inflationary pressures are still elevated. And if anything, they are worse on a month-over-month -month and week-to-week -week basis at the beginning of 2023. But they do give us hope. They give us hope that by the second half of the year, we could actually see those inflationary pressures subside. Now, that's a really big deal because it's also similar to what now brand new reports out are telling us from Whirlpool. Whirlpool expects to see raw material costs provide relief in 2023, and they're already starting to see material cost reductions. So while we're getting this sort of initial good, like bad news that, oh no, costs are still running high, now more and more companies are reiterating inflationary costs seem to be coming down. In fact, Nick T, the Fed's mouthpiece, just posted another piece saying, Whole Foods asks suppliers to lower prices as costs ebb. The grocery store stain, uh, chain says it wants price tags to reflect easing inflation. In other words, Whole Paycheck, in other words, Whole Foods, is suggesting, hey, it's time to start reducing prices, which would actually be disinflationary or potentially deflationary. One of the biggest complaints that I get every time I talk about inflation potentially easing as individuals tell me, Kevin, that's great that Whirlpool and Procter and & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson are starting to see some of their costs come down, but when are they actually going to reduce prices for us? Because when we go to the grocery stores, when we go to Target and we go to Walmart and we spend money, we're still spending a lot more money than we used to, and it's a pisser. And it's true. You're totally right to be pissed. But the good news is, finally, the companies are starting to wake up and realize, crap, we're going to have to reduce prices and pass these benefits on to customers to actually help boost retail sales again. Retail sales would also include discretionary sales. That's usually where your margins are as well, right? Your margins for Walmart or Best Buy are going to be on some of those discretionary things. It's not the that one product you're going in there for because you need it. You're going in there because you need uh, you know, a USB cable. Best Buy doesn't care about that. They're trying to get you in the store. So you go buy a TV, 
a new computer, an Apple uh, computer so they can get their commission, or you go buy a washing machine and then you use their higher margin geek squad or, 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 or their, their services, their install services to go install that for you, right? And, and then sell you warranty plans and insurance plans. And those are extremely high margin. Those are like 90 plus percent profit, right? So, or sell you gift cards, which most people don't redeem their full gift cards. So companies want you to come into the store. But the problem is people have been so squeezed and retail sales plummeted last month in December, uh, especially when you adjusted for inflation. We had a horrible retail sales report with downward revisions for the prior month. Uh, companies are starting to realize we need to drop prices. Otherwise, people are going to stop spending. Now, this is a good news. This, this is very good news, I think. I mean, listen to this. Whole Foods is asking suppliers to help the retailer bring prices down on packaged groceries as inflation moderates. They want to bring down retail prices in its store aisles as their own costs start to decline. As food suppliers have raised wholesale prices, citing higher transportation, labor, and production costs, supermarket operators say they have passed those increases along to consumers. This was previously, as prices have increased. After more than a year of price increases, shoppers have been cutting back on purchases, which is what I've just described, buying cheaper versions of groceries and seeking out deals across supermarket aisles. Some people, I actually used to do this when I had no money, I would look at the circulars to see where grapes were on sale, like who had the best sale on grapes. And I uh, have a certain area where there's Trader Joe's would sell grapes for say $2.99, Vons would sell grapes for $3.99 a pound, and I'd hop on over and go to Ralph's and get them when they had the 99 cent per pound special, and they had like a lot of grapes, <laughs> you know? So, you know, I, I, some people argue, hey, was that really worth your time? Look, back then I was working for $7 an hour. The answer is yes, it was worth my time. But the point is, that's what people do when they don't have a lot of money. It's very normal. That's what I did as well when I didn't have a lot of money. Uh, we know our customers are weighing the impacts of inflationary pressures. The company has worked over the past year to absorb rising food costs, offer new promotions, and work with suppliers. Whole Foods' rate of price increases have, has been lower than the industry average. Yeah, probably because you started a lot higher. The spokeswoman said, adding that the chain has lowered prices on some items, including cereal, bread, and sparkling water, and the company is in committed to ensuring that prices reflect easing inflation. Now, this is great. Overall, inflation is starting to cool. Prices of fresh fruits, uh, fish, seafood fell in December from November levels. Obviously, we still have issues with things like eggs. Doesn't help that apparently an egg manufacturing facility uh, burned down in America. That, that hurts. So certain things are clearly still hot. Spots. But look, yeah, we are still seeing some uh, strong indicators uh, that are getting stronger and stronger, fortunately, that inflationary costs are expected to plummet. Uh, and that's good. That's very good, especially if those benefits get, get passed on to consumers. Now, while inflation is uh, decelerating, there are red flags. One of the biggest red flags is what some folks are calling the potential for a second wave or a second chapter of inflation. This is what Michael Burry's been warning about. Michael Burry's taking it a little step further. He suggests, look, the Fed's going to ease, the Fed's going to pause, then they're going to reduce rates, they're going to cause another wave of inflation, and boom, we'll be right back to where we started, another disaster where the markets have to fall. I personally don't necessarily agree with that assessment, but that's okay. We'll, we'll leave my opinion out of it for right now. 
Another second chapter version of inflation, though, is a concern that in some areas outside of the United States, you're actually starting to see inflation surprise again. For example, the Spanish, Spain's Consumer Price Index report just came in at 5.8% versus an expectation of 5%. And this is suggesting that in some emerging markets, we're starting to see inflation become synchronous throughout the world over time, that higher prices in one country lead to higher prices in another country. And the implication of this could be that eventually as we see inflation go through a second chapter in the rest of the world, we could see upside risks to inflation in America. Some of those upside risks to inflation in America might be that medical services could jump, Medicare payments will increase at their highest rate in 14 years, that's already expected. We see the expectation that maybe rents or owner's equivalent rents could stay higher for longer. That yes, used car prices are going down, but if that decline goes away in February, which is a 5% weight for inflation, is it possible that other aspects like rent staying higher longer or medical services staying higher longer or rising could actually lead inflation to miss to the upside? especially with the fact that in January we get new CPI weights, which we won't see until the February uh, report on inflation, uh, which we'll look at the schedule of releases uh, for when we get the January report of inflation. We get the January report of inflation on February 14th, so mark your calendar for that. Uh, but the question here is how will those new, that's Valentine's Day, by the way, how will those new uh, weights affect how inflation is calculated, especially since we're moving from a two-year waiting measure to just a one-year waiting measure. That's likely being done to get rid of the 2020 uh, pandemic distortions. Uh, that's putting on the best case scenario here, not the tinfoil hat scenario. Uh, uh, tinfoil hat scenario, of course, being, oh, of course, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is going to manipulate the data to make inflation look like it's artificially lower than it actually is. That's the more tinfoil hat direction. But anyway, the, the concerns are that we could be facing a second wave of inflation, not just because of emerging market risks, whether it's Spain or other countries, or medical care services stay higher longer, rents stay higher longer, used car prices stop falling, which hurts with the, de uh, the, the deflation fight or disinflationary fight. But then you've also got the Chinese reopening. Now we've talked about the Chinese reopening at nauseum on the channel, but I'll just give you the quick bottom line. Uh, the Chinese consumer is only about 32% of the Chinese economy compared to 70%, that is the consumer of the United States economy is 70%. So the consumer makes up about twice the inflationary pressure in America than it did in China or does in China. And so this idea that the consumer going back to spending and traveling is going to drive substantial oil demand and inflation makes sense, but I think it makes more sense as a trade than the reality that's going to create inflation. In fact, just consider, for example, my rubber band thesis that a lot of companies are willing to provide substantially more goods and services and they have excess capacity, which could actually absorb a greater increase in demand. And one of the easiest places you could see this is by looking at the chip sector. You've got companies like Micron, Western Digital, uh, the South Korea, I can't pronounce this one, but it's like Hynix, uh, all of them, uh, including Samsung, they're all lowering their output because they're seeing massive deflation in, in the chip sector, specifically in memory. Companies like Intel got out of memory. Companies uh, like NVIDIA have much less exposure to memory, more exposure to GPUs and servers. Uh, AMD has a little bit more exposure to the PC market. So we might see a hit there when AMD reports. Uh, but the point is, you, you have 
a, a lot of potential excess capacity uh, at a lot of companies throughout the world. We've hired substantially to make sure that when people want to spend, we're able to absorb their spending. So that's something that could put a lid on Chinese inflation, also considering the fact that Chinese excess savings are only about $500 per person relative to the excess savings that we had in America after the COVID lockdowns ended of about $6,000 per person. That's a massive difference of about 12 times per person of a difference. So uh, substantially less of, a, of, a, of an inflationary catalyst, I believe, in China. But it's something that individuals are still concerned about. And look, Spain's miss to the upside is a red flag. On top of that, you also have what some folks call the tinderbox time bomb that we might face. The hedge fund, uh, hedge fund advisor, excuse me, uh, who uh, ad advised the author of the book, The Black Swan, uh, Nassim Taleb, he suggests uh, that, uh, that uh, so in other words, the author who advises hedge funds, let's get that clear, uh, and author of the book, The Black Swan, is providing a substantial warning that it's not just a second chapter of inflation that could really hurt uh, even if it's just sort of temporary misses to the upside. But it's also that ballooning debts across global markets could end up wreaking havoc on our markets. And he suggests that the greatest tinderbox time bomb in financial history is all of the debt that countries like the United States have accumulated through the COVID pandemic. And he suggests that if the credit bubble pops, because maybe we hit a second wave of inflation and then the credit bubble pops, we could end up seeing a financial crisis substantially worse than the Great Depression of the late 1920s. That we are going to see the most catastrophic market failure that anyone has ever in their lifetimes read about. And in his warning, he says corrections were once natural and healthy in economies, but now a correction of the magnitude of the debt cycle correction that we need, he argues, could create or become a, quote, contagious inferno capable of destroying the system entirely, that the world is just too leveraged today, that the debt construct is just too big. That's scary. Those are some scary phrases and scary words. So this is why this sort of second phase or second wave of inflation is leaving a lot of people very nervous. Even Paul Krugman, who believes that disinflation is coming, He's a New York Times writer. A lot of people don't like him. A lot of people do like him. He's an economist. He says that, look, even though his base case is inflation coming down, there could be a self-denying prophecy that could end up reigniting inflation. Now, this is really weird because usually we hear the word self-fulfilling prophecy is usually what we hear. But a self-denying prophecy is basically one where we say, look, it is not a problem. Uh, to to worry about inflation because inflation's already trending down. There won't be a second wave of inflation. Michael Burry will be wrong. And look, too many companies like Whole Foods, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, Whirlpool are all suggesting that we should see disinflation by the second half of 2023. So we're good. Well, Paul Krugman says that if ultimately we deny the potential for inflation, then we could reignite inflation by just starting to spend again and not worry that the Federal Reserve is going to crimp us uh, and, and, and to crimp inflation out. And this is why I think the Federal Reserve is going to be forced to keep sort of that hard face on 
to make sure that uh, inflation doesn't get out of control and financial conditions do remain at least somewhat tight to prevent inflation from reigniting. So far, though, the data suggests that a lot of this could just be fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Consider again, retail purchases have fallen for three out of the four last months. Spending on services, rent, haircuts, and the bulk of this sort of services-style inflation was flat in December. Now, what we also see is that really consumers, especially poorer ones, are being forced to pull back on overall spending as well, not just services inflation or services-based uh, uh, spending. We also know uh, that uh, ultimately, as unemployment starts rising, the number of spending we expect to see should plummet. Uh, and that is what we are also seeing as a potential catalyst for the bottom of the market. Now, this is an interesting one. There's an argument that industrial layoffs, uh, this is a report put together by RBC's head of equity research, as reported via Barron's. Uh, this report by RBC suggests that one of the ways that we could determine where the bottom of the market is, is when we look at a spike in industrial layoffs. Now, this is interesting because Dow Chemicals and 3M just reported that they're both starting to trim their workforces. Dow Chemicals just reported 2,000 layoffs. And RBC's head of equity research suggests that industrial layoffs are one of the best indicators we can pay attention to to suggest that a recession is either already here or around the corner. And generally, we know this, stocks tends to, tend to bottom when the recession begins because stocks tend to pull us out of a recession. In fact, what they've done is they've looked at the last two recessions and they suggested that, ignoring COVID, they suggesting that, uh, suggested that the dot-com bubble low of the stock market coincided with a peak in industrial job losses. They also suggested that the Great Recession low came right after a peak in industrial job losses. And they see that happening now as well. So personally, trying to put all of this together, you've got hawkish folks at the Fed. You've got bearish folks at the Fed. You've got Lael Brainard suggesting, look, there are lagging effects we have to pay attention to. We've probably got to cut here eventually uh, or at least pause. Bloomberg on their front page suggests that the Fed points towards a pause in May once hikes have time to sink in, which would basically price in 25 basis points for February. That's pretty much guaranteed for tomorrow and another 25 basis point hike potentially in March. But let's try to put all of this information together because all of this is obviously spawned by, yes, an ECI report that has turned indices positive, which is fantastic. But what do we want to pay attention to as investors? Well, in my opinion, to string all of this data we just got on inflation together, my strong opinion is that the best thing we can do is be patient. Be very, very patient because I believe we are going through uh, a Nike swoosh style recovery uh, in the stock market. I do not believe we are getting a V-shaped recovery like we got after the COVID pandemic. I think we are going to go through a Nike swoosh, very slow and steady recovery in this market. And I believe that we are already off the bottom. 
However, I believe there are going to be plenty of opportunities in these sort of jostlations here, oscillation, jostle, whatever, uh, these oscillations to basically buy the dip on individual companies that you're trying to increase your exposure to. My favorite kind of companies to increase my exposure to are companies that I believe have long-term innovative pricing power. Pricing power uh, being defined as something that over the next uh, decade, certainly over the next five years, have the ability to sell hardware at higher margins, to sell software at higher margins. However, companies that are also limited to being able to uh, uh, or, or limiting myself to companies that also have the ability to survive during a recessionary environment. So companies that have high free cash flow, right? Low debt relative to the cash they have. Uh, and sort of these innovative plays, whether they are ASML, a company that has a 90% uh, market share stranglehold on the advanced chip manufacturing equipment sector, uh, whether it's uh, potentially uh, a bet on uh, Taiwan semiconductors and even maybe a hedge of Intel against Taiwan semiconductors. Yes, I know Intel, which got out of the memory chip business a few years ago, uh, and their valuation has plummeted because their, their earnings have been terrible. Intel's roadmap for actually competing uh, under the CHIPS Act with massive subsidies to actually buy equipment from Taiwan semiconductors and manufacture it as their own manufacturing uh, uh, facility or within their own manufacturing facilities in the United States is actually very impressive, very impressive roadmap. Uh, and they probably will be a substantial competitor of Taiwan Semiconductors in the future. But these are sort of chip companies, in my opinion, substantial pricing power, specific, specifically amongst Taiwan Semiconductors, uh, NVIDIA, and ASML. Uh, phenomenal pricing power. You could look at a company like Tesla to say, relative to being within their own industry, highest amount of pricing power for vehicles, and then the potential software throughput. One of the big dangers of only investing in software, though, is that you end up with companies that are losing money or a free cash flow negative, which I think is a very dangerous investment to make during a recession, uh, especially during what I think will be a very sort of bumpy road out of here. So, so my belief is, oh, and then of course you have the energy sector, which would be companies like Enphase. I think uh, dip opportunities are opportunities to add, uh, even though they could be in a downward trajectory, which, which I've been calling for for over a year, that as residential spending declines, these companies will probably see declines. But companies like SolarEdge or Enphase, which have very, very high margins on their inverter businesses, uh, but are also part of a highly subsidized industry, uh, are part of the green energy trend, uh, and have high margin, and have pricing power for their products. These are, in my opinion, companies that we want to be paying attention to. Now, I obviously am not here to give you personal financial advice for your portfolio, even though I am a licensed financial advisor, and I run an actively managed ETF, and I sell programs on building your wealth and uh, sort of fundamental analysis, technical analysis, whatever. Uh, my thesis is that through this fear, all of this fear, uncertainty, and doubt that will probably continue for the first half of 2023, I think the stock market is poised to slowly trend up with a lot of sort of tre like trepidation in the meantime. So I think there'll be plenty of opportunity to sort of add to positions slowly. I don't think you have to be very aggressive. And I also don't think that you want to be all cash right now. I think you, you should have probably already started allocating. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I don't think we're in sort of an environment where it makes sense to YOLO margin. Uh, I don't think we're anywhere close to YOLO <laughs> YOLOing margin. Uh, as much as I'd like to go back to those 2020 days, 
I would personally advocate for staying away from YOLOing margin. <laughs> anyway, those are my thoughts on inflation, the employment cost index report. And again, very clear expectation that the Federal Reserve is going 20 or is going for a 25 BP hike tomorrow. But the most important thing is going to be that outlook. Obviously, I will be covering it live. So I encourage you to be here when I cover the FOMC meeting live. We'll be going live at 11 uh, Pacific time for the statement where we'll get the uh, 25 BP hike. Uh, and then we will be going, we'll, I'll, I'll continue to be live for the press conference, which begins at 1130, which is where Jerome Powell will provide his remarks. So I hope to see you there. All right, let's see here. That was a lot of good inflation coverage. <clears throat> uh, okay, <laughs> a lot of pricing power comments here. Yeah, uh, Cloudflare and uh, and Palantir actually are uh, companies that uh, that are the sort of SaaS companies that right now I'm, I'm slightly staying away from because the valuations are high relative to free cash flow. Uh, the U.S. technically never has to pay its debt. Uh, Hector here, uh, Salas, uh, thanks for being a channel member. Uh, technically, the U.S. never has to pay its debt. As long as we just make the little interest payments, you could just kind of keep printing money. I know that sounds weird, but the United States is not a household. It does not have to really balance its debt. Now, that's an unpopular opinion because most people are like, that's ridiculous. You know, we're fiscally irresponsible. But we could do this for as long as people trust the dollar. As long as people trust the dollar, you can continue uh, to increase the debt. Now that eventually, one day that will break. One day that will break. It might not be during our lifetimes. It could be tomorrow. I don't think it'll be anytime soon, uh, but uh, one day that will probably break. So it's, it's worth paying attention to. Any thoughts on international stocks outperforming US stocks over the next decades? Um, I think there are some international stocks that are actually very well worth looking into. Uh, specifically, I like ASML. Big, 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 big fan of ASML. Uh, the more research we conduct on ASML, the more convinced we are. Uh, I think Embraer, which is a, so ASML is a Dutch company. AS, uh, Embraer is a Brazilian company. I think these are some of your, your phenomenal choices uh, in emerging markets. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily call the Netherlands emerging though. In, in, in international markets, I should say. Uh, for Chinese exposure, I actually prefer uh, companies, uh, again, uh, like ASML, a lot of Chinese exposure, NVIDIA, Chinese exposure, and honestly, also Starbucks. I think Starbucks is going to be a big, 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 big recipient of a Chinese reopening. So uh, big, big fan about that. And, and I do actually believe that Starbucks has quite a... Um, uh, quite a substantial uh, level of uh, pricing power, but um, uh, I, I don't. Uh, I, I actually, I don't think I have a position in Starbucks right now. I I don't. I don't want to say I don't, but I don't think I have a position in Starbucks. If I do, I might add one though. I don't know. So um, yeah, okay. Uh, let's let's see what else we have here. There's there's a lot, but that ECI report was fantastic. All right. Let's find out what is next here. Uh, 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 okay, so we talked this, we talked Tinderbox, talked opening. Mm, mm, mm. Ooh, ooh, we actually have a lot more to talk about. Oh, there's so much. This is great. All right, 
So the next thing I think that's worth talking about is doing a quick update on uh, on uh, Ukraine. So let's do a quick Ukraine update. And then I want to talk Elon Musk a little bit. Stand by. Fascinating reveal on what Mitt Romney thinks about the Ukraine war and what it could potentially mean for the United States. We're going to go through that uh, as well as some other updates. Let's first hit some of the other updates just to get them out of the way. Uh, Mr. Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany has ruled out the idea of sending jets to Ukraine at this point. But I want to be very, very clear here. Even though Germany is ruling out the idea of sending jets to Ukraine, and even though Poland and, and uh, the Netherlands are super excited to start providing more military equipment to Ukraine, uh, Germany wants to make it clear that right now they're just focused on tanks, that it is unfair and undermines trust in government to start speculating on jets, when right now we need to deliver tanks, which means we are sending Ukrainians to uh, fields in the United Kingdom to start learning how to operate tanks, which could take five to six weeks of not just mechanical training, but also battlefield tactic training. And uh, it is way too soon to start talking about the idea of ever sending jets to Ukraine. That is what Olaf Scholz suggests, and this is in response to the deputy foreign minister of Ukraine suggesting that the Eurozone should create a fighter jet coalition and not just supply fighter jets to Ukraine, but also HDW-212 Alpha submarines. So that way Ukraine can finally kick Russia out of the Black Sea. Yes, as Ukraine is now getting battle tanks, they are now not just asking for jets, but they're asking for massive submarines. And a lot of folks would say, hey, this is never going to happen. They're never going to get jets. They're never going to get submarines. But let's, uh, let's look at history here for a moment. When Russia first invaded Ukraine, Germany said they would start uh, helping Ukraine immediately. And you know what Germany sent Ukraine? They sent helmets, boots, and bulletproof vests. Then we moved on to working with the United States and sending javelins and Patriot uh, missile uh, uh, battalions or batteries uh, and, uh, and, and, and HIMARS rocket batteries. So we went from helmets to rockets and, uh, you know, javelins and stingers, anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles. Now we evolved to sending armored personnel carriers. And within about a week to two weeks of sending armored personnel carriers for reconnaissance, we are sending battle tanks. So I believe it's only a matter of time before the world flip-flops and sends jets to Ukraine. Now, it's also worth noting that Joe Biden back in 2013, or in, in 2022, uh, it was March of 2022, so roughly a year ago, suggested, make no mistakes, sending battle tanks to Ukraine would be World War III. Make no mistake of that, said Joe Biden. Now we're sending battle tanks to Ukraine, and there's no more talk about this being World War III. So it does raise the specter that maybe, just maybe, we could 
end up sending fighter jets uh, to Ukraine because that's sort of the slippery slope that uh, the world economy has gone on. Now, so far, there are many arguments to suggest that, hey, maybe this is a good thing because really what we're doing is we're fighting a proxy war with Russia and we're weakening another nuclear power. In fact, that's roughly what Mr. Mitt Romney has to say, but I think it's best to listen to Mitt Romney say that himself. So let's go ahead and react to what Mitt Romney wants to tell us about his thoughts on the Russia-Ukraine war. Another reason that we uh, have interest in what's going on there, and that is because there's a nation, Russia, which is a geopolitical adversary. We're not at war with Russia, but they're an opponent. They actually have 1,500 nuclear warheads aimed at us. And we are, by virtue of supporting Ukraine in this, uh, this war, depleting and diminishing the Russian military, which is aiming its weapons at us. So this is a good thing for our national security. And by the way, Russia is also China's only real ally. And so if we're concerned about China, weakening Russia is a very good thing. Now that is a remarkable set of, dare I say, transparency of probably what's really going on in the backroom discussions of politicians in the United States. Consider, for example, the CHIPS Act ban on advanced manufacturing equipment and chip sales from going to China. The United States is very nervous about China. And Mitt Romney here tells us that China is basically Russia's largest ally. And China, Xi Jinping, has pretty much only gone as far as passively suggesting that Russia is just sort of exerting their regional dominance. In no means has China endorsed what's happening in Ukraine, and so they've gotten a lot less support than Russia probably expected from China. And China's doing a really good job of trying to respect the international sanctions that the United States has placed on Russia, uh, to the extent that at least we're publicly aware, to make it seem like China, on in terms of the world stage, is cooperating with the United States, right? That's at least what President Xi Jinping of China is, is, uh, is establishing China's posture as. Mitt Romney here suggests, look, if Russia is one of China's strongest allies, then by weakening Russia, we're also weakening China, which we have the CHIPS Act, which weaken, is weakening China. We've got tariffs on a lot of their products and equipment. Uh, we've got, uh, including tires, it's crazy. Uh, but we've also uh, got an incentive to make sure that countries like uh, our allies, South Korea, Japan, uh, Taiwan, are protected. Uh, the United States has multiple times uh, made it very clear that in the event of an attack on Taiwan, the United States would stand ready to help and defend Taiwan. That is a very clear assault on sort of uh, Chinese perspectives of their regional dominance. The United States wants to have regional dominance there as a way of sort of preventing Taiwan from being invaded just by talking about it, but also by ensuring they have uh, adequate access to trade in the region. Again, via Taiwan Semiconductors, the country of Taiwan, uh, you've got Singapore, Malaysia, the Philippines, uh, you know, trade routes to India. Uh, you've, you've got a lot of reason 
uh, to be exposed to China uh, or, or the, the Asia-Pacific region and to, uh, to potentially limit uh, China's ability to uh, remove the United States from the region there. So Mitt Romney may, is basically making the argument that, hey, like, you know, and I, I might be taking this a step too far, but it's basically saying, hey, you know what? The longer the war goes on in Ukraine, the better it is for us and our trade interests and our economic interests in Asia. Now, that sounds terrible because it's basically saying, hey, you know, the longer the war goes on against Russia, the more people die, but that's okay because it makes the United States money. But from a realistic point of view, that potentially could be exactly what's going on, is the longer Ukraine fights Russia, and this might be why there's not like, let's give Ukraine everything up front, it's like, let's trickle stuff out to them. The longer this goes on, the weaker, in theory, Russia gets. Now, of course, Russia wouldn't tell you that things are getting weaker for them. In fact, Russia instead, apparently, according to Boris Johnson, threatened to blow up Boris Johnson in a missile strike. In a BBC interview that just aired, Boris Johnson said uh, Vladimir Putin got on the phone with him. Uh, and uh, as, uh, as uh, this was before uh, Russia's invasion into Ukraine, uh, Boris Johnson apparently was trying to negotiate with Vladimir Putin and, and basically get him not to invade Ukraine. Vladimir Putin, apparently, according to Boris Johnson, uh, the Kremlin is full on denying this, calling this a lie. But according to Boris Johnson, Vladimir Putin basically said, hey, well, it wouldn't take much for a, a quick missile to uh, do some harm to you. It would only take a quick minute. Something like that. My accent's obviously really terrible. But, uh, you know, that's pretty blunt. That's <laughs> a pretty blunt threat. Uh, and uh, at the same time, as uh, Putin likes to sort of wave his saber, what do we also see is we see uh, Russia now implementing uh, new textbook policies that require that new textbooks for children in Russia be taught about the strategic operation that's going on in Ukraine and basically write history their way. And they'll have a council that's created to make sure that schools are cooperating with the new textbook requirements. Kind of wild. Now, uh, again, Joe Biden and Olaf Scholz right now are suggesting there's no way we are talking about sending jets to Ukraine, though we expect it's very likely for there to be a substantial flip-flop on that, especially since now the Associated Press is reporting that an advisor to Zelensky, quote, or suggests, quote, Fast-track talks are taking place for jets. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. <laughs> so uh, wouldn't be surprised to see uh, jets uh, getting sent over to uh, um, Ukraine pretty soon here. Uh, especially since at this point, you know, Putin has certainly given very few indications of ending the war. And clearly, as Mitt Romney mentioned here, the more we weaken Russia, not only is that good for us economically in uh, the Asia-Pacific region, but it also weakens a nuclear adversary who, in the words of Mitt Romney, has 1,500 uh, warheads aimed at us. Uh, in addition to that, you, you don't yet have sort of an, a, a large-scale uprising against the war in, uh, in within Russia. That is, the people within Russia are, are not really trying to overthrow their government for anger around this war. Now, of course, they're being peppered with uh, content that is uh, that is clearly very biased 
Uh, of course, we probably are also getting content uh, and, and perspectives that are very uh, biased uh, to the opposite direction. But, uh, well, <laughs> you know what? We, uh, we are going to see how all of this evolves. At the same time, though, Japan, according to a Bloomberg piece, is uh, rearming their own country at a dramatic scale. So there is also the concern that all of this escalation is basically building a world tinderbox. And that at some point in the future, you could see, as we've seen from warnings from uh, retired generals and existing generals, we could have a real conflict with China in the future if, let's say, China invades Taiwan. You could have conflicts uh, continue in the Middle East. At the same time, you could have conflicts that have been rumored between Turkey and, uh, and, and for example, Greece. Uh, which uh, w would would not be good. <laughs> there are there are so many potential things uh, that could go wrong, uh, and I think uh, renuclearizing and rearming the world uh, should create some more fear uh, than optimism uh, for the direction we're heading in. Here, for example, is a Bloomberg piece here. Uh, and, and it just sort of reiterates this part about Japan. Among the simple historic lessons being neglected is that governments everywhere are prone to grow more reckless as military escalation begins to seem the only route to peace. The leaders of Japan, another militaristic terror of the 20th century, are rearming their country on a dramatic scale even as the cost of inflating its already extraordinary, or even at the cost of already inflating its extraordinary fiscal deficit. So in other words, the more countries arm uh, and the more countries get better and stronger weapons and new weapons because they've given Ukraine their older weapons, uh, the more uh, likely it is we see more military escalation throughout the world. Scary times. All right, so let's see here. Next up, let's uh, take a brief listen to CNBC here. Let's see what they have to say. That was uh, obviously our Ukraine coverage. There we are. In the oh, you have your safeties first, dude. Safety, safety always first. By the way, first safety never cafeteria takes a vacation. Guyana. But Guyana, I mean, they could get up to, you know, they're, uh, you get up to a million barrels of Okay, but did you hear what Darren Woods said? Uh, I did. I he heard a lot of what the, Darren Woods said, and obviously I've spoken with Darren Woods a lot. He said the president was ill-advised. Uh, actually, we should take a listen. He said, because, you I know, he uh, said he was it, it, the White House fired back against Chevron uh, recently, Why criticizing their buybacks and dividends. Yeah. Meanwhile, you got a company made $56 billion this year, Return you might imagine. Turned to me. But can we have but that quote, quote we, where he we, says that the we, president doesn't know what he's doing? We're, yes, we're going to listen to uh, Darren Woods fire back against the White House. Take a listen. The White House needs to get his facts straight. If you look at what we've been doing, we've invested more than any of our other peers. And as I, as I said earlier, uh, when, when times were toughest, we were out there investing, investing at a level uh, that exceeded anybody else in our industry. And so uh, we've done the hard work. We've made the investments. We had a keen focus on making sure that we had the production there and products available for society when it was needed. When the call came, we answered it. We had spent that money taking criticism at the time and grew our production and are basically providing more products today uh, because of those investments. And so I think we're doing what the White House, in essence, is asking us to do. Of course, low carbon solutions becomes an even more uh, of a focus in this year and years ahead in terms of what they're spending. Benefits from the Inflation Reduction Act, right. potentially a real tailwind for them. 
Flaring. Or an engine, in fact, Flaring. towards no, their no decisions go. to deploy more capital. Excuse me? Flaring, they're good. Yeah, methane. Okay, so um, given all that, and you've been to everywhere other than... The, the, I haven't been everywhere, but I, but I did spend a good amount of time, as you guys but know. let me ask yeah. you, does the president need to get his facts straight? Yes. He does? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Jim. Okay, I'm going to pull off Jimbo here for a moment. We've got a uh, course member live stream coming up uh, probably within about 12 minutes or so. We'll hop over to course member live stream. We've got uh, Invitae down about 5%, Bed Bath & Beyond down about 5 uh, Toast down 3.6%. You've got Pfizer down about 23 uh, Tesla down about one14 GM actually rallying up about 6.9% after their uh, earnings. In fact, let me take a brief look here and see what we got from GM earnings. General Motors earnings, earnings, they must have come in better than expected. But uh, let us find out what uh, what the numbers were for GM and the we will know. All right, launch, come on, baby. All right, GM to benefit greatly from the Inflation Reduction Act. GM CFO says automaker is not prepared for a price war. Mary Barra says that vehicles are priced where they need to be. GMC's discounts on models increasing this year. What is that? Wait, so on one hand, they see discounts increasing this year, but vehicles are priced where they ought to be. GM aims to boost inventory up to 60 days by year end. Uh, Mary Barra sees demand for Chevy Silverado EV into 2024. Yeah, it's probably because you're only making 10 of them. Okay, sorry, I'm being I'm being facetious. GM planning more than four EV battery plants. We're not planning layoffs. GM Barra sees company doubling revenue by 2030 to 275 to 315 billion. They've secured all the battery material they need to build more than 1 million EVs annually uh, in the United States. Largest investment into battery raw materials. Uh, well, good for them. <laughs> uh, gaining considerable market share in the fleet business. Estimate for guidance was 5.7. Wow, their guidance for adjusted EPS was actually good. Adjusted EPS guide average midpoint was 6.5, and the estimate was 5.7. It's pretty good. It's actually pretty good. We'll probably go through this in the course member live stream. Net sales came in at 43 versus 40. Might go through the document in detail there. All right. Next up, we got to talk about Elon. Stand by. Stand by. Who's that guy? Who do I sound like? Morgan Freeman. Stand by. No, I, I'm not going to pretend I sound like Morgan Freeman. Anyway. What's at stake for Elon Musk's lawsuit? It is $6 billion of potential costs for Tesla, which would basically mean they have to borrow lots of money. And given that they just opened up a credit line for between five to $7 billion, which is supposed to be to help them facilitate the building of electric vehicle plants and battery plants, it comes at an interesting time, since while Elon Musk and Tesla are being sued for Elon Musk's taking Tesla private at 420 tweet from 2018, the potential damages could be as high as $6 billion per Bloomberg. 
Now, investors are claiming that Tesla stock was artificially inflated by about $66 during the period of time that uh, immediately after Elon Musk tweeted Tesla, taking Tesla private at, at 420, uh, and then right before uh, Elon Musk ended up posting a blog on the Tesla website suggesting, no, we are not going to end up taking Tesla private. Now, Bloomberg suggests that there could be a potential for a settlement that is substantially lower than a $6 billion deal. Usually a settlement would be worked out after uh, Tesla and Elon Musk in the event that they end up losing, end up losing. Uh, so a settlement uh, would be potentially uh, to the tune of 10% of the alleged damages anywhere between $500 million to $1 billion is the potential damage that Tesla would face uh, in the event of a settlement after a loss. Now, you might ask yourself, why would anyone settle after they just won? Well, it's because Tesla is very likely to appeal uh, the loss. And the, generally, you can only appeal if your due process has been somehow violated. But Tesla has already basically set up all they need to be able to appeal because the judge in the case who's presiding this case has already told the jury that he believes Elon Musk's tweets were misleading. Now, an appellate court may end up determining that the judge in this case calling Elon Musk's tweets misleading could end up being something that a jury should determine, not an individual judge. That then gives Elon Musk and Tesla a potential to appeal losing this lawsuit for a lack of due process. However, an appeal could take over a year to be heard, so that would be into early 2024, and an appellate court could end up ordering an entirely new trial. And that gives Tesla a lot of settlement leverage because even if the people suing Tesla and Elon Musk now win, if it goes to an appeal and a new trial happens, they might not win again. And Bloomberg believes uh, that this gives massive settlement leverage to Tesla and Elon Musk. Remember, these, these lawsuits were all filed in, uh, in, in about mid-2022 for this issue back in 2018. Uh, Bloomberg thinks there's about a 50-50 chance that Tesla and Elon Musk win or lose. What's interesting, though, is the lead plaintiff, this guy Glenn Littleton, he's 70, 71 years old. Apparently, he was trading like $10 million worth of Tesla options in August of, of 2018. He had over 470 unique trade that, trades that month. And back in the 80s, he was fined for violating wash sale rules and briefly had his securities license uh, um, suspended. But apparently, what's fascinating in the case is that the lead plaintiff argues in court today that, hey, I thought Elon Musk's tweets were definitive. I thought he was definitely going to sell Tesla at $420 per share. But emails have actually now come out uh, through the court case and emails show that he didn't actually think the, uh, uh, the, the, the case was definitive or that Elon was definitely going to take Tesla private at $420 per share. Uh, Zero Hedge provided those uh, two emails. And Glenn Littleton here writes, I got out of the obvious stuff because a lot of people thought it was a hoax and still had bids out there. I saw so many red flags with Elon and Tesla. Too much drama. So in other words, while he thinks it's definitive that Tesla is going to be taken private, that's at least what he's alleging in court, in emails at the time, he's saying, 
eh, seems like drama, seems like a hoax. And then he says over here, there is so much risk in these options, as you can imagine, if this rumor of Elon taking Tesla private at 420 is correct, then the strike prices except calls below 420 become worthless, correct? This is basically if you have out of the money calls for let's say $500, but the Tesla, the company goes private at 420, then those calls above 420 uh, might either be worthless or, or settle at a, lower, uh, at a lower price or probably just honestly worthless. Uh, and so that's a risk. And so he's alleging that he lost money because he had to close certain positions. Forget about the option stuff for a moment. The point is to say that here's a guy who's arguing in court. I definitely thought it was going to go private. But in emails, he's like, it sounds like a rumor and a hoax. On top of that, Apparently, during the actual coverage period, he actually made $2.4 million on options. So he actually made money. He didn't lose money on his option trades. And now, in fairness, he did have to close some other positions, uh, some of those longer-term call options. But by the time his longer-term call options would have expired in January, he would have end up, ended up losing all of his premium on those because of not only theta decay, but also because the call options would have not actually hit their strikes. So we could potentially have lost more money. So a prior judge who's heard this case has actually said and declared that the lead plaintiff in the case against Elon Musk would have potentially lost more money. So if anything, Elon Musk helped the lead plaintiff A, make money and B, lose less money. So I think it's going to be really hard for a jury to find that Elon Musk is somehow liable for this lead plaintiff losing money when the reality is he actually made money or potentially lost less money than he otherwise would have. But the argument still exists that, well, what if Elon was wrong to say that funding was secured? Well, Elon believes that funding was secured. In fact, not only did he believe that funding was secured because the private investment fund of Saudi Arabia, Arabia was going to take Tesla private and had been wanting to take Tesla private for a while, but according to board meeting minutes, Goldman Sachs and Silver Lake assured Tesla's board of directors that funding was available from a variety of sources. All of this is coming out in the lawsuit. Another thing that's coming out are actually text messages uh, which we, uh, because they're uh, being submitted as court evidence here, we have to evaluate as likely being accurate text messages, but who knows, you know, people can fake text messages. But this seems like a reasonable uh, discussion that ha was had, and it, it, it kind of shows the frustrating position that Elon Musk was in. So apparently these are texts between Elon and Yasir, who Elon Musk believed was the representative of Saudi Arabia's private investment fund, that could have made the decision to help Elon Musk take Tesla private. And so here you see uh, an article that Elon Musk sends to the individual saying, Saudi Arabia's private investment fund has shown no interest in helping Tesla's buyout. Elon says, what the hell is going on here? This is false. Yasir replies, this is not true. Nobody talked to them. Okay, so it's really clear that something weird is going on here because the article is saying Saudi investment fund has no interest in helping the Tesla buyout. And now the individual is saying, no, that article is not true, which basically says, so you are interested in helping Tesla do their buyout, right? Uh, and then he writes, good morning, Elon, want to check in with you and your team to see if you'd be able to start sending us information. We could have a kickoff team so that we could talk about the investment. Basically, he's like, hey, I got to sell the idea of taking Tesla uh, uh, private to the other people involved in the private investment fund. Elon's like, 
Dude, I'm deeply offended. This is ridiculous. You have to refute the false statement that you have no interest in Tesla because we've been talking about it. Well, apparently they did that and they made a comment talking about how they're in talks to invest in Tesla with a buyout deal. And Elon says, dude, this is a weak statement. It doesn't reflect the conversation we had at Tesla. You said you were definitely interested in taking Tesla private and had wanted to do so since 2016. You also made it clear that you were the decision maker, that you don't have to sell this idea to anyone else. Right now, I'm sorry, but we can't work together. Elon's basically like, middle finger, you're a bitch, you suck. And the guy's like, dude, it's up to you. He's like, come on, man, you're throwing me under the bus here, not cool. And then he, uh, this private investment fund guy, is here, goes, look, it takes two to tango. We haven't received anything yet. They go back and forth a little bit. I'm not going to read it all word for word, but basically Yasir's like, let's get on the phone and talk about it. Elon's like, sorry, it's over. The guy's like, dude, come on. Like, I don't want to throw you under the bus here, but we need some documents. Elon replies and he's like, dude, it's a publicly traded company. You have everything you need. You've already bought a 5% stake in Tesla. But, and then the guy's like, oh, but we want details. Like, how do we take it private? And Elon's like, you're not an idiot. He didn't say those words, but he's like, dude, when we met, blah, blah, blah. You guys know how to take a company private. I'm just speeding this up because I'm not going to read this all word for word. You could pause the screen and read it yourself. But basically, you're extremely experienced financially and are well aware that a go private transaction would require a 20% premium over the market price to buy out any shareholder that didn't want to sell. So anyway, uh, uh, we haven't taken any company private yet in order for us to do that. I got to get some other people involved, blah, blah, blah. We haven't gone to the media, uh, blah, 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 blah. And basically Elon is like, dude, you suck. You told me you had the power to take the company private. You burned me. We have Silvergate and Goldman that could help us take Tesla private. Elon wholeheartedly believes that the taking Tesla private tweet is factual. That's what he's arguing in court. Bloomberg gives him a 50-50 chance of winning. Worst case scenario, it's a $50 billion bill to Tesla, although it's likely that's just going to end up getting settled down to $500 million to a $1 billion. Although, given that the lead plaintiff kind of seems like a trading scumbag who is just upset he didn't get to make more money and is kind of being greedy about this, given that he made money and probably lost less money than he otherwise would have, it seems to me that it would be very difficult for a jury to actually say that Elon Musk it deserves to be guilty and Tesla ultimately deserves to pay $6 billion up to potentially $6 billion in damages. I think Tesla and Elon are in the clear here and the case just continues to get more and more ridiculous as more information and data come out. Now, with that said, I'm gonna hop on over to our course member live stream. I love y'all, but I also love my course members and I promised them the opening bell and some fundy analysis. So goodbye, Godspeed, hopping over there now. I love y'all, goodbye.